Okay, Galatians 6, uh, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will, rep- we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, come before you this morning opening your word uh, and reading the truths of Galatians, Father, and pray our hearts would be open to that as we examine our lives and as we've been going through the series of of looking at what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to have fruit in our lives. I pray that we would be able to see this scripture and examine our lives and uh, you, would, you would change us, Father. We would realize our, our selfishness so many times and you would come in and you would break us, Father, and we would leave this place changed. We lift up Royce to you as he's going to bring your word, pray for your Holy Spirit and pray for the truths that are going to come out of his mouth. Uh, and we just thank you that we can enter into your house and we can spend time uh, with one another, singing praises to you and reading your word. We just lift this time up to you. Amen. Can I have a seat? Recently, I read a story about a family who had a large piece of property. And in the back of that property was this big old tree. It was a fruit tree that hadn't borne fruit in many years. And uh, the little boy of that family loved that tree because he could p- climb in it and he could play around the canopy. And he, is an, he and his friends would spend hours and hours in their imaginary world playing around that tree. Well, one night the father at dinner time announced to the family that he intended to cut that tree down the following weekend since it hadn't had produced any fruit in years. Uh, and his wife thought that was a good idea because it makes some really good firewood for the winter. So uh, they said that's what they're going to do that following Saturday. Well, the little boy panicked. He wasn't sure what to do. He loved that tree. He loved playing around that tree. That was his main playground. But he needed to convince his parents to keep the tree and not, worry, not have it for firewood. So he thought and he thought, and then he came up with an idea. So after school one day he, uh, that week, he uh, went into his piggy bank and robbed his piggy bank and he went down to the market, and he bought all the apples that he could get and, uh, the, and that he could carry in his little red wagon, and he went back secretly to the back of the property, and he tied apples all over the tree with string. And then uh, he, he went, went home. Well, Saturday morning rolled around, and they had breakfast together, as they normally do, as a family, and then his father announced, saying, um, no, nope, I want to go out and cut that tree down now. And he went, got up from the table and went out to the garage, got his chainsaw, and headed out to the back of the property. Well, the little boy, as you can as imagine, was kind of anxious. He was waiting to see what would happen. And just a little while, la- little while later, the father burst into the kitchen all excited. And he said, honey, honey, there's been two miracles. And, and the, the mother is startled. Two miracles? What are you talking about, two miracles? He goes, you know the tree out in the back that I was going to cut down? She goes, yeah. He goes, so I went out there today, it's loaded with ripe red apples. And she's astonished. She says, it can't be. It hasn't produced fruit in years. How can it be loaded? He goes, I don't know. It must be a miracle. And she pondered that for a little while. And then she said, wait, you said there were two miracles. What's the second miracle? 
Well, the father said with a big it's loaded with ripe red apples, but it's not an apple tree, it's a pear tree. <laughs> this is a silly little story, maybe a proverbial story, about a boy who thought he could fool his parents into doing something for him that he could get what he wanted. And maybe it's proverbial because many of us probably in some ways are like this little boy. We maybe move through our life focused on our desires and they wants and take little serious thought about what God the Father wants and desires. Maybe we are so adamant about getting our rights that we don't bother trying to think about what is right. Maybe we think about that we can behave any way we want as Christians because, after all, we will, God will always forgive us. Maybe we barter with God and say, God, if you will only do X for me, and you fill in the blanks, then I promise I will do Y for you from now on. Has anybody ever cut that deal with God? Maybe we are convinced into thinking that even though we do things that we know are wrong and harmful, we convince ourselves that God will overlook that and He will protect us and clean up the mess that we make in our own lives. There's a proverb, Proverb 19.3, that says, A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. A man's own stupidity, his own foolishness, his own carelessness ruins his own life, and yet he, get, he gets angry with God. God, why did you let this happen? God, why don't you hear this? Do you know anybody like this foolish man in the proverb? Or maybe... Are you like the foolish man in the proverb? Two weeks ago, we started talking about getting fruit in our life. Got fruit series. In other words, the fruitfulness of a Christian. And we began that by looking at Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. Jesus tells his parable. He had two groups of people following him through his life. The crowd and the committed. And they followed him wherever he went. And he made a distinction between those by telling a parable. In that parable, he talks about a farmer who goes out and sows seed. Some of that seed goes along a path, and it can't penetrate the ground, so birds come and eat it, eat it up. And then he talks about a man, who go, the same farmer sows seed along, that it's in shallow soil. So it springs up fast, but because when, it come, when the sun comes out, because there's no depth of root, it withers and dies. And he talks about another type of soil in which uh, uh, the farmer sows, in which the, the plant comes up and it grows, but it's choked by the wheat and the tares. And therefore, even though the plant's there, it never produces fruit. And then Jesus said there's a fourth kind of soil, a fourth kind of person, and that is, he calls, the good soil. And what made something good was, Jesus said, that it produced fruit. A hundred times, sixty times, thirty times. And Jesus' point in that parable and in that message is those who are the crowd and the committed, you can tell the difference because those who are committed will bear fruit. That's a promise of the gospel. Will bear fruit in their life. Last week we looked at, we, that after that, Jesus said, well, if you bear fruit in your life, you're part of the committed. That begs the question, right? Well, what's fruit look like? What, what is he talking about? And we said we could have talked about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but we looked at uh, Colossians 1, and we talked about how when the gospel comes in and changes people's lives, you'll be able to see it. In fact, the, the point, the main thrust of the message is because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives, 
transformed lives will express the power of the gospel. And, and we talked about in that prayer, Paul talks about that principle in Colossians 1, and then he tells them what he's praying for. These are the things you're going to see changed in your life. These are the signs that you are fruitful in your life. For example, pleasing God in all aspects, and doing good, and spe- uh, seeking to know God, and gaining strength through difficult times, and having an attitude of gratitude, and even, even reproducing transformed lives by my life or your life. Now today we're going to continue with this theme, this analogy, if you will, of fruitfulness in our life. But we're going to talk more on how do we become fruitful. If we need to be fruitful, if if being fruitful is a sign that we're part of the committed, not just the crowd, and fruitful looks like the change, the gospel change in our life, well, what do we do? How do we do that? Well, Paul addresses that in, in, in the passage we're going to look at in Galatians. If you look at Galatians 7, at the beginning, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. He says, do not be deceived. More accurate would be, do not deceive yourselves. Do not be deceived. He's not pointing that there's some exterior force that's tricking you, that's fooling you. He's saying, you yourselves are kidding yourselves. You're fooling yourselves. You're deceiving yourselves. And then he goes on and says something kind of startling. He says, God is not mocked. The word mocked literally means to stick your nose up at somebody. It is to sneer at them. It's to be, it is to um, scorn them. He's saying that what happens when people deceive themselves, not only that, God's not going to let you get away with that. God is not going to be mocked by, what, by your deception, by your deceiving yourselves. And he says that God, Paul's concern is that many people are considered themselves followers of Jesus are really deceiving themselves. And that's what he spends a lot of the book of Galatians dealing with. Some different ways that they are deceiving themselves and thinking that they're following the gospel. And not only are they deceiving themselves, but they are either intentionally or unintentionally, they are mocking God. They're thumbing their nose, strumming their nose at God. Now, um, why, how are they doing this? Well, many people um, do not connect the attitude and actions and behaviors they have with the resulting consequences. Many people, many of us, do things, say things, think things, and we do not connect those things we say, do, and think, our affections, our desires, we do not connect them with consequences that happen in our life. We assume that because Christians, uh, we assume that as Christians, we can exempt ourselves from the consequences of our actions. Oh, we're forgiven. God's gracious. Christ has paid for that. Therefore, we don't have to worry about the consequences to our actions. You ever heard the expression, wild oats? Monica and I were trying to, we did a search, like, where, where did that come from? You ever heard the phrase, sowing your wild oats? It's probably a generation, I think it's a huge term. It usually used to somebody in the younger generation, somebody older said, when I was younger, I went and I sowed my wild oats. Well, wild oats is an analogy, it's a, a metaphor for bad behavior, particularly sexual promiscuity. So when somebody says, oh, I, I sowed my wild oats, I was, just had a great time and I enjoyed it, and it was very destructive behavior. Well, I read a quote recently, and, I, and he said that uh, many Christians sold, sow wild oats throughout the week, and then they come to church on Sunday and pray for a crop failure. I think that's true. Many of us live our lives as if, yeah, we're forgiven, we, we're, we're, we're part of the gospel, we can live that way, but we give very little thought to how we live What are the consequences? What is the fruit of that in our life? Today I want to go through four principles. Four principles that uh, that we can use to help us understand this, this, this concept. And I'm going to continue using botanical or farming or gardening language. 
uh, for two reasons. One is, Jesus and Paul did it, so I'm going to piggyback on their wisdom. Uh, secondly, I think it is a little easier to remember the imagery of gardening, of, of seeds and planting and harvesting. So that imagery is easy for us to, easier for us to remember than if I just made up some kind of spiritual phrase. So we're going to, those four principles are principles uh, but in, a, in a gardening kind of way. You'll see what I mean. First principle. Let's just begin with the first one. We harvest what we plant. We harvest what we plant. That's, that's a deep one. I know you've got to settle on that one for a little while. I talked about this actually last week. If I take a tomato seed and I plant it in the ground, what can I expect to grow out of that seed? Somebody tell me, loud. A tomato. Okay, if I plant a zucchini, what do I get? A zucchini, a pepper, a pepper, a corn, corn. And this is like, no, duh. Right? We plant those things in our life and we say, that's of course, that's what we get. Well, we harvest what we plant. And, and he says in here, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, in verse 7, for whatever one sows, that they will also reap. For, he begins that with, he says, God is not mocked for, because, this is the reason God is not going to be mocked, because you reap what you sow. We don't use the word sowing necessarily in reaping. Sowing, by the way, is planting, and reaping is harvesting. Okay? So I'm going to probably use planting and harvesting more. It's more common to our day. We plant and we harvest. And, and Paul says in there, whatever one sows, whatever, it's all inclusive. He's just not narrowing it to your prayer time or to your Bible reading or to your marriage or to your family. He's saying whatever, in any aspect of your life, whatever you plant, you will also harvest of like kind. There's a, the spiritual application is that when we plant our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors in our lives, we will produce fruit directly corresponds with that kind of whatever we planted. If we plant good things, what do we get back? Good things. If we plant bad things, what do we get back? Bad things. Okay, you're tracking with me, okay? That's as simple as that. And he says, he goes on in verse 8, he goes on to explain, he unpacks that because that's a little too simple. What does he mean by that as a Christian life? He goes on and says, for, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If we plant attitudes and actions, behaviors, focusing on our flesh, our, um, our sinful nature, our selfishness, our pride, our life without God, if we sow, if we do actions and attitudes with that motivation and that aspect in our life in mind, we will, re- we will harvest from that Corruption. Corruption means degeneration. Something going from bad, uh, from good to bad. It's used of fruit and, and like fish that, that spoil. So something was good, but now it's corrupted. It is, it's rotten. It's no longer useful. And that's what happens. We have things that could be good in our life, but because we sow them out of our flesh, out of our sinful nature, out of our pride and our selfishness, it actually turns out and reaps for us. We harvest from that something that is bad. At the same time, he's saying if you plant good things, if you plant to the Holy Spirit, according to the gospel of God, you will, you will harvest something back. What you will harvest is a changed life that reflects God's grace and provision. Now, he uses this language. We did not sit down like the Galatians did. They received this letter, and they read through it in the first time. This is one of the disadvantages of doing a series like this. I pulled these verses out. We're plopping them here. We're talking about them. But we have not read Galatians all the way through from 1 through 5. And the reason that's a big deal is 
just a little bit earlier in this, he tells us what he means by flesh and the spirit. He goes through this conflict. So I'm going to just read a short passage about that for you. It sets the context. He's saying, if you sow to the, if you plant to the flesh and you plant to the spirit, what's he talking about? Well, he unpacks that here. He says, and this is Galatians 5, 16, eventually through 26. But he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. He's describing a conflict that we have in ourselves. For those who are, for these are opposed to each other, to keep to keep you from doing things that you do not want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you will you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now, this is why I'm reading this. Because now he says, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to harvest from the flesh. If you're going to plant that way, well, what does he mean, flesh? What does that look like when we plant to the flesh? Well, he names this stuff now. He says this in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious, is what he's saying. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's is all. Whatever I've forgotten, throw it in there. Okay? And he says, I warned you, as I have warned you before, that those who, live, who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, lest we quick draw the conclusion that he means, well, there's a checklist of do's and don'ts for Christianity, which many non-Christians think, well, it's just a matter of do's and don'ts. If you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts, you're, you're good to go. That's not what he's talking about here. He's describing a life that is given to the flesh, that those things that manifest, those things that show our sinfulness coming out of us, and, he, and then he, he lists things for us to get an idea of what that looks like, would look like in our life. And if that's all that marks our life, we are not living according to the kingdom of God. In Corinthians, Paul does a similar kind of list, and at the end of it he goes, and so were some of you. So he's saying that even though these things might at some point in your life mark your life, he's saying it's not beyond the power of the gospel to change you. To Corinthians, these same lists, he says, and so were some of you. You're not that way now, but you were then. It's the power of the gospel. But he goes on in Galatians, he says, okay, that's what the flesh looks like, but what does the spirit look like? What does it mean to have the spirit? So he goes... In verse 22 of Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They don't, they don't plant that seed anymore. If we live by the Spirit, we are also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, deceiving ourselves, provoking one another, and envying one another. So he's saying if we walk by the flesh, there are selfishness of things, and we're going, to have, we're going to plant those seeds, and we're going to see the fruit of that. If we walk by the Spirit and live according to the Spirit, the gospel change in our life, we're going to plant those seeds in our attitudes and actions and behaviors, and we're going to see the fruit of that. We're going to harvest that back. Let me give you three, I'm going to work this through, just to make it a little bit more tangible, in three just areas. We could, we could talk about anything, literally anything. I picked three areas. One is just the way we speak to each other and the way we talk to each other. Really simple. Proverbs, Proverbs um, 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So if we plant harsh words, what is it we're going to harvest back? 
Anger. Anybody ever try that? You ever done that? I, I'm the kind of simpleton who practices Proverbs to see if they're true. No, I, I literally have a number of Proverbs uh, and I haven't wreaked too much devastation in my life. But this is one that I actually purposely, intentionally tried to do. And I spoke harshly to certain people and gently to other people. And, you know, it's true. People get ticked off when you speak harshly to them. Go figure. If we plant soft answers, what do we get? Peace. You ever talk to somebody who is angry and livid and in your face, and you respond calmly and softly and, and nicely, and you watch the anger melt away? You, you plant, you harvest. Um, Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose who's, uh, rat." There is one whose rash or reckless words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There are people who say things rashly, recklessly, carelessly. They just say what comes to their mind, and the Proverbs saying, when you plant those seeds, what do you get? You cut somebody with a sword. That's the result of those kind of words. He says, plant wisdom, um, but if we plant wisdom, what does it bring? It brings healing to other people. That's the fruit of a wise person who speaks wisdom. The people they speak to are healed. Now, what would happen, though, is saying, okay, this is just good, good, bad, bad, and we can make it real simple like that. But if we're Christians and we're living in light of the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing is applying the gospel to our life. What the Spirit is is helping us connect. Christ died for our sins. Therefore, there are certain things that are true Therefore, we should behave a certain way. For example, in, with, in regards, we're still talking about how we speak and talk to each other. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about, after he goes to great lengths, three chapters of laying out what the gospel is and how it changes us, he then goes a little late in the halfway through Ephesians 4 and says, Now I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. And he unpacks that. What does he mean by the futility of minds? And then he gives the put-off, put-on principle. Put off, put on principle. And Paul says this, do put off your old self, your flesh, your sin, put off, put that off, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be, new, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created, like, to, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's imagery there is like taking on and off clothing. You have a clothing of your sinful nature, your flesh, take that off, and put on the new clothing of being in Christ. Change the way you think and put on that clothing. Change your style. Then Paul goes and gives a series of examples. What do you mean, Paul? What, t- flesh that out for us. He gives a series of examples, and one of those has to do with how we talk to each other, how the gospel changes the way we talk to each other. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed on the day of redemption. Paul again says, okay, if you're, if you're putting on the new man, if you're putting on who you are in Christ, don't let rotten talk come out of your mouth. Anything careless, the word rotten is the same word. It means, it means like rotting fruit and rotting fish. It stinks. It's complaining. It's gossip. Anything like that that just is junk and rotten coming out of our mouth. He says, you're, you're, you don't have to do that anymore. Don't behave that way. And then he gives us some examples. Such as good for building up. So speak so that people are, are encouraged by this. 
that fits the occasion. We are under the delusion that because we have an opinion, we get to share it whenever we want. Okay? That's not true, by the way. It fits the occasion. And it gives grace to the person who hears it. So when people hear us speak, they're built up and they receive grace. That's what it means to train your tongue to reflect the gospel. It means for us to, uh, to plant the seeds uh, of the gospel in the way we speak and see the harvest. People are encouraged. People are built up. People are, are, are receive grace when we speak. Notice also in that Ephesian passage, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He directly links the way we talk to each other with grieving the Holy Spirit. When we talk the wrong way, out of our flesh, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, grieves. But when we speak correctly, he is happy, I guess you would say in that way. Let me give you another example of this, of planting toward the Spirit and not to the flesh. Sexual conduct. Our sexual conduct. When I talk to people about, uh, as a pastor, about sexual issues, there's a lot of it... <laughs> There's a lot of that talk in our day and age for a lot of reasons. One of the things that surprises me sometimes is that many people, particularly younger people, the number one thing they want to know is how far can I go before it's wrong? They want to know the line. If I can, I can do all that sexual activity they want up to this point, I don't want to cross that line because you know, I don't want to sin, but up to there, how far can I go? If you're, here's my response. If you're asking that question, you're dead. You're, yeah, I better not say that. You're um, in trouble. You're always going to be moving the line. You will always be moving that line. No, when you're enjoying things, it, it becomes a little fuzzier where that line's drawn. When we sow to the flesh, we want to please those desires. Therefore, we move those things. That's what it means. But, but how do Christians then behave? What do we do? Just because we're told, don't do that, we don't do that? No. That's not the way. Many, many non-Christians think, again, that Christianity is a simply a list of do's and don'ts. If you, don't do the, if you do the do's and don't do the don'ts, and you know, sex is one of those taboo things, so you know, Christians are prudish. Christians just, don't, they're just really are Puritan in their behavior, so therefore they don't talk about it, don't do anything, and we're surprised they even reproduce. <laughs> well, that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible talks about. It talks a lot about sex and good sex. It's designed by God to be enjoyable within the context of marriage. And Paul says in Corinthians 6, he says, flee from sexual immorality. That's just a broad term. It's porneia, which we get pornography from, but it means any, any of that kind of behavior. So flee that stuff. Run! Everyone who, who, every other sin is a person sins outside of his body, but a sexual moral person sins against his body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? from whom you, uh, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christians behave a certain way with sexual conduct, not simply because of a list of do's and don'ts, but as we think through, will this behavior, will this attitude, will this thing I'm doing uh, be, uh, bring glory to God? Will it enhance Him? Is it reflect what He has given me in the Gospel? It, you know, it's not free. Somebody paid dearly for me to have that freedom to enjoy. And that was Christ. You were bought with a price, the death of Christ. Therefore, 
in light of the gospel, that truth that you are not your own, but the Holy Spirit resides in you, honor God with your body and use your body to glorify God. And where is that? It's in the context of marriage. God did design marriage to, to enjoy and to be fruitful with physical intimacy. We should not be ashamed of that. We should promote that. But it's within that context. So when we sow to the please of flesh, we do what we want, whatever pleases us. When we sow to please the spirit in the, in the area of sexual conduct, we do so within the context of marriage. How about forgiveness? Has anybody in here ever had somebody hurt you? Okay, I won't even bother the show of hands. Okay, how about this week? How about this morning on the way here? Okay. We get hurt all the time. You know, it surprises me sometimes that people are surprised that other people are sinners. Okay? They, so-and-so said something. So-and-so hurt me. Well, of course! <laughs> you know? I mean, i got to be careful with going down that road. But anyways, we hurt each other. We have not completely sanctified in Christ. We're this side of heaven. Therefore, there is conflict in our life for lots of reasons we don't have time to go into right now. And when in us, when somebody hurts us, they're within us because we are created in the image of God. There is a sense of justice that must be fulfilled. There's a sense that somebody has to pay. And that is a God-given part of our being created in the image of God. There is a right and wrong, and when wrong is violated, somebody has to pay for that. And that's not a wrong feeling. The question is, what do we do with that feeling? The question is, who is going to pay? And as, Christ, as Christians, we can say what? Somebody has paid. Christ didn't just, just, just die for my sins, my past sins, my present sins, my future sins. Guess what? He died for other people's past sins, present sins, and future sins. And when somebody hurts me and I cry out, somebody has to pay, I can say, somebody has paid. Therefore, I can forgive. Forgiving isn't just forgetting. Forgetting and say, ah, don't worry about it. Forgiving is saying justice must be served. Christ served the justice. So now I can love them. Now I can be kind to them. Now I can let go. When that anger swells up in me, and it will swell up, I can let go of the anger. I can give it to God and say, God, this is your problem. If we plant seeds in our life of anger and unforgiveness, what do we harvest? Bitterness. And bitterness tears us apart, not the other person. Bitterness destroys the person who's bitter, not the person who they're bitter at. You know who the next casualty of bitterness is? The people immediately around them. Again, often not the person they're bitter at. When we sow to the flesh, we don't let that go. But when we sow to the Spirit, when we plant those seeds, we can say, you know what? We can forgive. Paul said in, in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That's forgiveness. Along with malice. You want to seek revenge? Put it aside. It's already been done. Already been taken care of. But be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How can we forgive? By the Spirit, how can we sow those seeds to the Spirit? Well, because when we are hurt and we're upset, we can respond putting off all those negative things, saying, Lord, these are yours, you deal with that. That's your side of the, that's your problem, not mine. But I can be tenderhearted, I can be kind, I can forgive, because that's the way God treats me in Christ.
That's the gospel. So when we sow those seeds to the flesh, we reap it. When we sow the seeds to the spirit in forgiveness, we reap the benefits. That's the first principle. Three more to go. You still tracking with me? Okay, these go a little faster. But they're a little, more, a little bit more complicated. Not too bad, though. I'm, I trust that you'll be able to handle it. Okay, let's do this. Second, first, we harvest what we plant. The second one, we harvest more than we plant. We harvest more than we plant. Botanical example. Okay? The, the plant, the garden example. If I plant just, um, if I plant one tomato seed, what do I get? A tomato plant. Do I just get one tomato? Maybe in your garden, but you're not supposed to, okay? That's a hint, by the way. If there's only one tomato there, that's a problem, okay? You're supposed to get a whole bunch of tomatoes, and inside each tomato is a whole bunch of seeds. Farming would not make any sense if we planted one seed and got one fruit out of it, right? It wouldn't make any sense. You can't reproduce things. We, we always get more back than we plant. We harvest more than we plant. It's true spiritually. Paul says in, in, in 8, he says, For the one who sows his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and one who sows to the spirit will from his spirit reap eternal life. Remember, Jesus back in, in, uh, in um, Matthew 13 was talking about the parable of the soils, and he's talking about why do you teach them in parables? And he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The, people, the crowd does not give more secrets, but you committed do get more secrets. For, this is the principle, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. God's not stingy, and he's not frugal in his giving of spiritual wisdom and insight. You get, and you get in abundance. But to the one who does not, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then he tells the parable of the soils, and the parable of the soils, what is the one sign of a good soil? That's the only sign he gave. A harvest, a fruitfulness. Of a hundred times, sixty times, three times. It looks different, different places, but there's still, it reproduces more than was planted. That's his point. And that's what it is for us. It, when we reap corruption, there is both the immediacy of this. When we do certain actions, there is, in our lifetime, there are, we harvest back bad things. When we do bad things and we have consequences in our life, we, we get that back and it is compounded. But ultimately, he's saying there, you will reap destruction, um, the word, the word for uh, corruption could also be destruction. In other words, ultimately the harvest of somebody who sows only to their flesh is eternal destruction, a.k.a. hell. But he's also saying here in verse that the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap what? Eternal life. Now that eternal life begins now. For those who respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, your eternal life begins now. You don't die and wait and then suddenly, boom, you're in. You start living that eternal life now. It doesn't feel like it. It may not look like it, but you have begun that. So there are immediacy of the fruitful and the harvestness of the blessings of Christ come now. But ultimately, the harvest of that will be at the end of the age with eternal life. We will live um, eternally. The third principle. The first one was we harvest what we, what we plant. The second one is we harvest more than we plant. The third one, we harvest in a different time than we plant. We harvest in a different time than we plant. Botanically, in our garden, if I sow my tomato seed this morning, do I go back this evening and pick my tomato? Okay, it's not a trick question. Do I go back tomorrow and pick my tomato? Do I go back next week and pick my tomato? No. 
in the garden, in the farm, in the area, you, you plant in one season, you cultivate, you, and then you wait. It has to do what it has to do. It grows. Whether you're a radish, I have radishes, it takes 30 days before they're supposed to be ready. But our pumpkins are supposed to take 120 days, four months. So it depends on the plant. But the point is, you don't plant a seed and it pop up and there you go. You reap, you harvest in a different season than when you plant it. Now, in verse 9, let's look at verse 9. And let us not, he says, and let us not grow weary in doing good, <clears throat> for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not grow weary. Do not get tired. For in due season, or literally at the right time, you will, re- you will harvest the result of what you planted. And this is a, a, a problem in our culture, I think particularly because um, of our, our, our culture of immediate gratification. Our, we immediately want things. We want our food immediately. Not too many of us have gardens. If we want corn, we go to the freezer and pull out a pack of corn. And we're annoyed if we have to go to the grocery store and pull a package of corn. We want things and we want it now. And we're used to getting it now. The food we eat, it's, it even comes prepared. The multiple forms of entertainment we want, watch, you don't even have to wait to go to a movie theater anymore or read a book. It can be on your, strapped to your hip all the time. It's in your ears all the time. It, we, uh, our communication, it's not good enough that we have phones. It's not good enough that we have phones that ride on our hips or in our pockets. But, and our email isn't fast enough anymore. We have to text. So we want immediate response. We want it right away. Immediate gratification for what we want. TV shows and movies. TV shows and movies. They'll have, uh, they'll have um, problems, whether they're personal problems or family problems or national conflicts, resolve themselves in an hour. It's amazing. Not really, but you know. But what that does is it builds an expectation, an underlying expectation in us that why can't we get it now? Why can't I get to harvest what I plant now? And it works both ways in our lives. We, we, and this is, I think, one of the primary ways we deceive ourselves. When he said, don't deceive yourselves, I think this is one of the primary reasons we do get deceived. Because when we do things that we know are bad, know that are wrong, we make those conscious decisions, we're willing to chance it, we do it, and we wait, and there's no proverbial bolt of lightning, we're good to go. There is no consequence. I can do it again. And the same with, with doing the right things. So into the Spirit. We go and we, we do what we know and are led by God to do and it's very positive and we wait and wait a second. I did, I did the right thing. Why are they still upset? Why isn't this changed? God, why haven't you changed the things? Where, where's my harvest? And we get impatient with God and we think, well, maybe it didn't matter. Maybe it wasn't worth the effort. Maybe God doesn't even care that much. And we get impatient because we forget that we harvest in a different season than when we Recently, Monica and I were uh, taking a walk. We walk a lot. And we were walking and we were reminiscing about our early years of our marriage. This August will be uh, our 30th anniversary. So we decided this is a good time to start reminiscing about those early days. And uh, in those early days that we were married in our early 20s, um, we, we were just blessed by God to be discipled by some mature men and women who told us how to be a husband and a wife, who told us how to love each other and to give to each other and, and to how to deal with lust and how to deal with all those kind of things. And we, so we, we listened and we planted those seeds early in our marriage and we kept planting. And as we were walking along, it occurred to us that we now, were 30 years later, were reaping a harvest in our relationship that we planted three decades ago. 
We have a relational intimacy and physical intimacy and emotional intimacy that, that were just fantasies back then. But now we have connected in ways that are just the harvest. We're just reaping. We're harvesting what we planted a long time ago. If we had gotten impatient and, and, and planted other seeds or worked in our life other and said, this isn't worth it, I don't get to change now, then we would have given up, believe me, we would have given up a long time ago. We reap in a different season than we, we, um, than we plant. I think this is also a big part of a trouble we have in our Christian life with some things because we sometimes want immediate results. We want our life to change immediately. We want the gospel to be immediately applicable. We want to read, do that Bible study and say, what's the truth I'm going to apply this afternoon? And yet Christ talked a lot about stepping back and having a big picture. He says, for example, do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure is in the immediacy. I want it now. That's where your heart is. If your treasure is with the eternal kingdom of God, that's where your heart is. And he said, you know what? There is some patience. There's some times we will not fully reap, we will not fully harvest what's planted until someday in heaven. We harvest what we plant. We harvest more than we plant. We harvest at a different time than we plant. And fourthly, we harvest in proportion to what we plant. We harvest in proportion to what we plant. Botanical example. If Bob plants one seed and Mary plants of a tomato, we'll use the tomato theme here since it's going real well. Bob plants one tomato seed. Mary over here plants 12 tomato seeds. All things being equal, who's going to have the most tomatoes? Mary. Okay? Again, not rocket science. The more we plant, the more we're going to harvest. Okay? That's this principle. And he says in verse 10, look at verse 10. He says that. He says, so then, in conclusion, what do I do with this, Paul? Well, so then, as you have opportunity, as you have opportunity, it's pretty open-ended, isn't it? Let us do good to everyone. Everyone. And especially to those within the household of faith especially to those within the household of faith. He's given a simple principle. The more you plant, the more you're going to harvest. So, as you have opportunity, plant those seeds by the Spirit. Get in there and do those things. To everyone, but especially because of other gospel-minded people, to the household of faith. Because they should be planting in your life, too. Um, in, in Corinthians, when Paul was talking about to them, he uses some other uh, language to do this. He's talking to them about Corinthians. He's been working with them for a while, uh, for quite a while, years. And he's, they're taking a, he's taking a collection for the church because of a famine in Jerusalem. So he's telling the Corinthian church, you know, we're, you know that, that offering, that money you promised for Jerusalem? Well, I'm sending some guys to come get it. Okay? And I'm forewarning you so you're not embarrassed. Because if it's wimpy, it, you're going to be embarrassed. And he literally he talks about that. 
Then he says this. He says, in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, the point is this. This is his point to them. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's his principle. That's his principle with finances. That's his principle of life. If you sow sparingly, if you hold it back, you don't get much. You sow bountifully, fully, all you can, guess what? You get a lot more back. Jesus had some other passages that talk the same way. With the measure you used, it'll be measured back to you. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Four principles. We harvest what we plant. We harvest more than we plant. We harvest at a different time than we plant. We harvest in proportion that we plant. As I thought about this, and I was thinking about these principles and, and working through it for myself, and I was talking to Monica a little bit about it this week, it occurred to me that, that maybe we can use this a little bit, start thinking a little bit differently. So here's, here's an experiment I'm going to throw out. Experiment for us to, throw, to, to try. Um, when we are faced, when you are faced with any number of things, a decision that, of what to do or not to do, or how to respond to somebody, or what to say to somebody, whatever, you fill in the blank. When you're faced with a situation, instead of thinking what I think we normally think in the process, we think, well, what is right or wrong in this instance, this instance, or what is good or bad in this instance, right? That's what we normally say. Or am I the only one who says that? Okay. Maybe we can prayerfully switch things around and say, if my, at- if my attitude and action in this our spiritual seeds, what am I planting? What am I planting? And what kind of fruit will I eventually harvest? So in just, instead of just saying uh, what, is, what is good and what is bad, what is right, is wrong, is wrong, so, you know what, if this is a seed, if I think of it as a seed, how I'm going to talk to that person, the decision I'm going to make, what am I, what am I planting? And if, if I can understand what I'm planting... What do I expect to eventually, it might not be immediate, what will I eventually harvest? Does that make sense? Okay, that's why we're, that's why we're doing an experiment here. Um, and I think as we do this more and more, we'll get used to doing it more and more. How many of you drive a, um, a manual transmission? I'm surprised, more than I thought. You know, this, I'm talking about you know, the shifting, Okay. Okay. Uh, the uh, most, it's hard to find them nowadays. I, I was thinking about this week driving that we were driving in, and I think when we live to the spirit and we sow the seeds, and we get. I'm, gonna, I'm shifting. I'm mixing my metaphors now, so bear with me. I was thinking about that. We we have to sometimes think very consciously. So I'm thinking, okay, if I'm planting a seed, what am I going to plant, and what am I harvesting? Kind of awkward. But then I was thinking, I was driving, you know, we drive a standard have for years. We've made all four of our children learn to drive a standard, whether they ever continue to drive one or not. In fact, I think three out of the four do drive a standard. Um, we, we, we have them do that because, and when you learn to drive, this is my point, when you learn to drive, it's very clunky, it's very awkward, you stall the car all the time, it's herky-jerky, it's really embarrassing, okay? Especially when you go and try to do it on a hill. It's a mess. But after a while, when you start doing it, you go and you start shifting, you don't even think about it. When we drive, Monica and I drive now, we don't even think about shifting, we don't think about moving, alternate moving our feet and our right hand's doing it and our left hand's doing it. That's all four appendages are doing something. But it's, it comes naturally. I think that's what it is to walk in the Spirit and to live by the Spirit and start sowing these seeds. At first it's awkward. We've got to think. But after a while we get used to it, it just starts happening. And we start to start doing it. You can take that metaphor for what it's worth. 
Jesus is the ultimate example of these principles. I'm shifting gears again. Jesus, you knew I had to get to, get to him. Um, I have been getting to him the whole thing. But Jesus is the ultimate example of these principles. He lived these principles in his life. Jesus, uh, Jesus harvests what he did not plant, or what he planted. Jesus harvests what he planted. Jesus planted the ultimate seed. Think of it this way. He planted the ultimate seed, didn't he? His life was buried in the ground. He died in the ground. And he was raised again from the dead. And from that, we have been receiving the harvest, the plenty from that. And we will for all eternity. Jesus harvests what he planted. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we might have peace and be reconciled to God and each other. Jesus harvests more than he planted. Although Jesus himself died to pay for our sin, Jesus did not die for his own sin. He died for our sins. For even the Son of Man, he said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. His one death harvested many lives. Jesus harvested at a different time than he planted. Although Christ lived and died 2,000 years ago, he's experiencing the fruit now, and he's harvesting now, and he will for eternity. Jesus harvests uh, harvest in proportion to what he planted. The infinite, valuable Son of God and the Creator of the universe gave his life and provided a glorious and eternal benefits to sinful and rebellious creatures such as ourselves. When we take the Lord's Supper each week, we celebrate that Christ planted his life, that he died, and that what we are doing when we take and we celebrate, ironically, the harvest of grain and the harvest of the vine, the fruit of those aspects he gave us as reminders of his death and, his, and, and his, uh, for us, his body being broken and his death, those are reminders of us. We can go every week to the Lord's Supper and, and be thankful for... Um, uh, that he planted the seed of his life in forgiveness, and we now reap the harvest of those. Paul said in Galatians 6, I'm wrapping it up now, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. A person, whatever one sows, he will also reap. We harvest what we plant. We harvest more than we plant. We harvest at a different time than we plant. And we harvest in proportion to what we plant. Two questions for you as we end this. Two questions. What are you harvesting in your life? And, more importantly, what are you planting in your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, glorious Lord, we do thank you for your presence. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your power. We thank you, Lord, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin through Christ and through Christ alone. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you that you have given us principles to remember that you use the world around us like gardening and farming to remind us of spiritual truths to help us to grow in obedience and in applying the gospel to our lives. We thank you for these things, Lord. And as we continue to worship, just bring to our hearts, bring to our mind the things that we are harvesting in our life that are a result of Christ's work for us. In your name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.